We're talking about building back better with Bree Nisley on this week's Renew Guru. Hello out there in podcast world. This is Renew Gurus, your source for all things energy policy in and politics in Missouri and beyond. I'm executive director of Renew Missouri, James Owen, coming to you live on tape from Renew Missouri's palatial studios in Northern Columbia. Joining me from his undisclosed location on the boards, Philip Forsica. Hey, Philip. Hey, how's it going? Well, it's great. I'm glad that we. I'm glad that we're here. I'm glad that we uh, we have a great guest, um, folks. If you listen to this podcast, you read the renews that comes out. Uh, you know that we've been working uh, here uh, with a phenomenal coalition of fellow advocates from around the country in the Rural Power Coalition, and we've been working on some um, legislation at the federal level. And uh, we are really excited about that. And we kind of wanted to give everyone like kind of a rundown of what we've been doing and talk a little bit about what we foresee in the future for that. And I wanted to bring on one of our fellow coalition members, Bree Nisley of Appalachian Voices. Did I do that right, Bree? Yeah, yeah. I think we got we got the phonetics now down. Thanks, James. Okay. That's the most show prep I've ever done for this podcast is trying to learn how to pronounce Appalachian. Um, Bree is the uh, see, Tennessee campaign manager for that organization. Uh, she's coming to us from Knoxville. Hey, Bree, how are you? Hey, James, glad to be here. And just so sad that folks don't get to see your face behind uh, the podcast recording as, as you're doing all this. It's just, it's really a missed opportunity. Well, you know, we, we talk about doing a visual element, but I think the sound and the audio is so amazing and we don't want to overwhelm people. So we, uh, I was hoping to get a laugh out of that, but, uh, <laughs> well, no, sorry. I laughed behind my mute. I, it's there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, please laugh. I need the validation. Um, so, so Brie, Brie, uh, tell us a little bit about, um, Appalachian voices. I mean, what, here's what I know about it. We had a wonderful policy clerk here that uh, graduated from the University of Missouri a couple of years ago. Another Emily name, Pia. Emily Piontech, who is another name I could never pronounce. Yeah, and it's actually Piontech, so it seems like you never could oh get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, Emily, if you're listening, forgive me. You know I never could pronounce that. Emily was like, would do you want be on this podcast whenever I'd have... Um, uh, the people who worked here who all sounded like they were like on a hostage tape, uh, like I was forcing them to be on this podcast. But Emily is just wonderful. And I know she works out of Virginia for your group. That's right. Yeah. Emily's doing work on electric co-op stuff and just totally kicking ass. It's It's been great since that's, she's crazy. Yeah. Our loss is your gain, certainly. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about uh, your group. I mean, um, you know, it seems to me like you do a lot of the same work that Renew Missouri does, but you kind of do it over a larger uh, area over multiple states. But kind of in your words, what does Appalachian Voices do? Yeah, well, you know, we have a whole like elevator speech mission statement, but I never was quite able to get that down. So yeah, I'll tell you definitely in my words what we do. Yeah, we've uh, we've been around for more than 20 years now, and we actually started with um, producing the for our first year of work. We started with the production of an environmental news publication, uh, a newspaper called the Appalachian Voice. Mm -hmm. And we stopped printing that during the pandemic, but we oh. 
previously, yeah, we previously distributed that through all volunteers um, all throughout the region. And it was a super awesome newspaper that a lot of people like and know us by. Um, but we also have done a lot of sort of advocacy and organizing work on a number of energy and environment issues over the years. Yeah. Um, so obviously mountaintop removal, big issue here in the Appalachian region. That's been our bread and butter for you know, decades, like working to fight mountaintop removal. And um, we still do some of that. Uh, a lot of that these days kind of looks like monitoring um, permits and bonds related to different mining operations. Um, we still do water monitoring, make sure that, you know, any of the runoff that's coming from these mines is within compliance and that these different mining operations have permits. So, and we've also done a lot of training like citizen science, how to keep an eye on your own water, water as well. Oh, um, that's, yeah. You're very, you're very like, kind of encompassing on a lot of environmental issues, not just energy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's, there's definitely a very strong, like how to just transition focus, you know, how do we transition right. our energy sector into one that is um, clean and just, but, but yeah, yeah, it's like, how, how are these energy issues impacting our environment and our economy is kind of what we look at. And so we also work around pipelines. We have a fantastically just super successful, awesome pipelines team that, um, you know, fought off the Atlantic Coast Pipeline with other organizational partners oh, and okay. currently working around the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which spans a number of states in our region. So they're fighting against that. Um, we've also done a lot of work around coal ash, um, particularly my colleagues in North Carolina did a lot of work around coal ash in previous years. And we've been doing that some here in Tennessee too. Um, but also, yeah, working on just transition new economy issues generally. Like how do we bring more solar and more solar access to our region? How do we transition our utilities to ones that are more democratic, um, more just, uh, cleaner, greener, you know, all that good yeah. stuff. So, and that's that's what I do. I do a lot of this like utility focused work. And you are, I mean, you mentioned a lot of states there. I mean, you have a big I mean, you're, yeah, you're got, a geographical area. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like we work really sort of central Southern Appalachia. We've got two offices in North Carolina, um, two offices in Virginia. Then we had the Knoxville office here. Mm -hmm. And I'm using office kind of figuratively now since like we moved to telework during the pandemic. You know, oh, some of the offices are like not actual structures anymore, but may come yeah. back eventually. But like, yeah, that's where we've had offices. But we also, our work does carry us into other parts of the region. For instance, like my colleague Willie does a lot of work around black lung issues, like miners that have been impacted by black lung from their years of working in the mine, trying to yeah. make sure that there's a national disability fund set, you know, that's continuing to receive funding for that, for supporting those miners with getting healthcare access. So Willie does a lot of work around like around that, goes up into West Virginia some for that, you know. So we go into other parts of the region, but wow. Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, that's kind of where we're pocketed. Got it. And with your fo your focus on Tennessee, but I'm sure you kind of like work in some of these other, you know, kind of other topics, but I mean, in Tennessee, you do work, I mean, with utilities, rural electric cooperatives. I mean, yep. prior to the work that brought us together, our, our groups together, um, what, what were some of the, what was kind of some examples of some of the advocacy work you were doing with, with co-ops? Yeah. 
Well, it's interesting. I'm on our objective to energy democracy team. So that's the name of our team now. But when I first started at Appalachian Voices, going on five years ago now, um, our program was called Energy Savings. And we were specifically focused around how do we get more energy efficiency programs in place at rural electric co-ops. Yeah. So like my early days at AV was doing a lot of advocacy for, um, there's one program in particular called Pays, Pay As You Save, that we did a lot of work around and, you know, did that advocacy work and helped get um, the first Pays program. I say helped, but obviously there are a lot of like people working on this, but we did a lot of, a lot of communication with one co-op here in particular um, Mm -hmm. to support them with implementing a Pays program. So that, that was the early stuff, but uh, it really evolved from there. Um, we tried also to really respond to like, what are the issues that member owners are dealing with right now that they're concerned about right now. And one of those was um, a co-op in Northeast Tennessee, the electric co-op used herbicide application to manage their right-of-way lines. So the electric lines that run to people's houses and they sprayed those lines with herbicide without notifying people or giving them an option to just clear the right of ways themselves. And normally you would think like, oh, it's like this rural, you know, pretty red part of the state, like people aren't gonna care that much, but actually they cared a lot, um, sure. <laughs> you know, cause they had people coming up in the suits spraying their right of ways without any notice and- Scary like, stuff. Yeah, I mean, guns got pulled, the thing oh. was, like, oh yeah, I mean, it was a whole, it was a whole deal. I, some people didn't know that their property had been sprayed and it also wasn't applied correctly. So there was like overspray that went into people's gardens and it's like a food desert in that area. So a lot of people wow. grow their own food for themselves and their neighbors, you know? And so like home gardens were, were impacted. Um, there was a tobacco farmer that lost two crops a lot of people said they had health impacts, you know, so there were lawsuits, um, sure. lawsuits against a co-op, a lot of people calling, complaining, like the community just was really up in arms over a lot of this. And it was just a good time for us to be there to support like member owners with organizing around this issue. And they, they ended up, um, they got an, an opt-out and notification policy in place. They got the co-op to update their website. The co-op initially didn't even have a website. It was just a billing portal. And the board of directors didn't even know what districts they were representing because these were guys <laughs> who had been on the board for like 23 years and, you know, had lost track of like what what area do they actually cover <laughs> in, their, wow. in their districts. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, Sorry, I know I keep rambling and you probably want to talk back here to, to this. Oh, a little bit. I, I don't, <laughs> I honestly, like I, we spent the past year and a half, like on these meetings, talking about these kind of shared efforts we're doing. I have no idea what you do when we're not talking. <laughs> oh, this is good. I mean, so like, okay, I want to kind of talk a little about the herbicide yeah. thing. I mean, this, I mean, did the, did the co-op change any of their policies or any of their management of that process because of because of these concerns that were raised by their member owners? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, you had a, a, a serious amount of public pressure and legal pressure that the co-op was facing at the time. So they knew they had to do something, right? Yeah. And so it, luckily like member owners um, were ready to respond. Like they started to, they brought together a small group and started having discussions about this. They called for meetings with their co-op leadership and they got an opt-out policy in place and a notification policy in place. Oh. 
And what was interesting was um, there was a like a beekeeper, not exactly a beekeeper, but but like a bee advocate <laughs> in the group. And this small group started working with these beekeeper networks across the state um, or like right there in in those counties. And those are like, and I'm talking, this is like, this is a pretty rural area that I'm talking about here. And like, I think the beekeeper networks are probably the most organized bodies outside of the churches um, that actually brought people together. And so they got an opt-out notification policy in place at their co-op and a neighboring co-op because beekeepers some of the beekeepers had also lost some of their hives, which was like thousands of dollars of damage. And so, no joke. yeah, so, I mean, uh, it was awesome. But uh, in this process, like we worked with this group to put together these sort of co-op 101 workshops. And we did a bunch of them, I think like seven, eight or nine of them throughout the service area. We did these workshops, taught people about like, how is their co-op governed? You know, how does governance work? Um, what does it mean to be a member owner? Like what, what can you do to affect change? What are co-ops across the country doing to respond and like be, uh, you know, just be better co-ops in their community? Did a bunch of stuff like that. And throughout this whole process, like obviously they got this really awesome win at the beginning, but like once the member owners started digging into what was happening at their co-op, they just were totally, I think, blown away by how mismanaged it was and wanted to address that. And so- you know, they made a demand for open board meetings. Um, they wrote a bylaw amendment that they tried to get passed. They, unfortunately, they did not get that passed. They also ran three people for board and were totally beaten down in that process. And a bunch of sketchy shit or sketchy stuff happened. Sorry. That's I don't okay. Know you're keep, you're keeping a PG. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. A bunch of sketchy shit happened when they ran for board. Um, like there were allegations that uh, the, the co-op leadership actually paid people in the low income apartments in the service area to like vote in favor of the incumbents for $20 a vote. They really? use, yeah, they use co-op money. <laughs> they use co-op money to put ads in the paper in support of the incumbents. And then there were like rumors started in the community about like these people, these reform candidates um, being like radicals and having all these like liberal politics, you know, being abortionists or anti-gun, like all that shit happened. Meanwhile, the member owners were doing amazing stuff. Like they were going to cattle auctions, trying to get people to vote for them. They were going to county fairs. They did door knocking in like really rural areas. And I mean, it was amazing. And that, that annual meeting, they ended up seeing like normally around 500 people, I think, or less would come to an annual meeting. And there were more than 1200 people voting at the annual meeting that year. So even if like those folks didn't get elected, I mean, you certainly engaged more member owners in this process. And like, I think, you know, if anything, that's a big victory. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think so. And like just all the publicity that was happening at the time, like that year and the following year when the when the bylaw amendment was really pushed, like the co-op started putting out in like uh they started writing columns or whatever oh i forgot like our member owners even have a newspaper call column and they did like cartoons um every other week that they would put in their newspaper it was so badass it was just so cool but yeah they lost and but they were able to force the co-op to open their board meetings even though that wasn't codified in the bylaws like the co-op started opening meetings now you can go uh there's a much better website now (laughs) now the now the board members actually know what districts they represent and there's member owners at every board meeting. 
And these member owners have continued to push on the co-op leadership and continued relationship building with some of, of the, the board and the general manager. Um, there's a new general manager now. And they, they got they just got the co-op to apply for a grant to put in a rapid electric vehicle charging station off of Highway 25E, which is so cool. Um, the co-op is looking at uh, putting together a plan for beneficial electrification in the area. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's like, there's just cool shit that they've still, you know, been able to accomplish even after that really, really contentious. Sure. You know, just like very dramatic board campaign. Almost like people voicing their minds and trying to get change can put some pressure to enact that from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, you know, even though this sounds like just moving the needle, I mean, I think them running for board and all that pressure from the spring and then the open board meetings campaign, you know, I think it forced some of the board members, particularly the board chair to really like at least sit up a little straighter in his chair and, yeah. you know, respond to what some of what these member owners, some of the things the member owners were asking for and just, you know, be, be more of a director of a board instead of just a um, passive participant in these meetings. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, my tendency to, to in, in working with folks and I, I, we haven't really done the, the grassroots work that a lot of, like a lot of what your group has done, but one, one thing I've noticed is a lot of the public thinks that, you know, they don't have any real control over how this, how their power works. They walk into a room, they want the light to turn on, they get a bill, they might complain about how high the bill is and that's it. That's as much as they think about it. But I think that there is, if you're willing and, and you are interested, there is a lot of things that you can have an impact with on how your how uh, on how your 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 utilities run, what services you get. I mean, I think all that really does matter. Yeah, I think that's totally true. I mean, you know, this is something that advocacy and organizing groups are like running into all across the country, which is that most member owners of electric co-ops think of themselves just as a customer. They don't know they're actually a member owner. Right. And just like, you know, revealing that piece of information is a start to like unlocking a number of, of ways that, you know, you can have an influence on how your co-op makes decisions. But once you actually learn about like who is on my board, who actually represents my community on the board, when are my board meetings happening? Um, what are some of the laws and policies that govern my co-op? How does my co-op, um, what do the contracts look like for where my co-op gets its electricity from? And can yeah. I have any influence over what kind of electricity sources we have? Or what are some other programs that my co-op might implement to support the needs of my community? Because they really are like tools for responding to community needs. It's not just an electric utility, right? Now right. we see co-ops across the country that are implementing that are rolling out broadband internet services because the same thing that happened <laughs> with electricity throughout like American infrastructure development, you know, rural areas didn't get electricity for 50 plus years after um, urban areas, like the same thing's happening with internet service where rural areas really need that. So co-ops yeah. are really a tool. The people who pay bills own them. And if you want to, you know, engage and, have some ownership over how your co-op is making decisions, you can do that. You may run into some resistance depending on who's in leadership, but you can still find ways to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, and that is really, I think when people learn that and they realize like how much they can do, it really is eye-opening for them. And 
And I, you know, it kind of it gets to like, you know, you talk about moving to the future and how co-ops were kind of originally put there to, you know, to to bring rural America into the modern world back in the 30s when these were created. And so now uh, our coalition, this group that you and I, our groups are working on together, Rural Power Coalition is what we're calling it, the RPC. Philip, what are those, where, are people, where can folks like learn more about the RPC? Let's do that before we start talking about it. Uh, go to ruralpowernow.us and we also have Rural Power Now on Facebook and Twitter. Just Google Rural Power Now. You'll find us, um, you know, share everything we have. Right now we have a call to action for a, an LTE and also asking for folks to reach out to their senators to help build back better paths. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Hold on. You're, you're jumping ahead of me. It's one of the, it's one of the websites. No, you're all right. You're okay. Um, <laughs> now, so we, we are a part of this coalition. We have been working on this. I think... Um, We've been working on this since June of 2020, or at least that's when we got brought in, when Renew Missouri got brought in. And we've been working on this plan that will make it easier for co-ops to make kind of this transition to, into, you know, into the future. And so I kind of wondered, like, maybe if you can give like your, uh, you know, kind of like when you explain this to folks, what it is that we're working on, what we're trying to accomplish with this, uh, with this group. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the Rural Power Coalition is working to support electric cooperatives with retiring coal plants, which are inefficient, high polluters, um, and replacing those coal plants with cleaner sources, more just sources of energy. And I think, you know, the reason this is important to me in particular is that, well, one, we know that electric co-ops produce a lot of emissions in the electricity sector. And we've done right. some research or we've worked with groups that have done research that say co-ops are responsible for 20% of, you know, all carbon emissions from the electricity sector, which is a big deal. Wow. Um, but, you know, when we think about transitioning to renewable energy, I think like it's important to understand that without federal support, it's going to be very difficult for rural yeah. communities to do this. Um, and I think for me, it's just like when I think about how electricity has impacted rural areas, you know, like we rural areas were the places that got electricity last and it was way later <laughs> than, than urban communities. You know, we're talking, yeah, like 18 late eight, or 1880s. I think there are a lot of urban places in the U.S. were electrified. And it wasn't mm -hmm. until what, like the 1930s or something that co-ops yeah. really started taking off in the U.S. And I also know like some of the communities that I work with here, I work in Tennessee and this is Tennessee Valley Authority service area. Right. So we have a big federal public sort of quasi public utility, New Deal utility that came in um, as the GNT and produced a lot of the power and it sells it to our electric co-ops or municipal utilities here. So we have a pub, a pretty public system. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Because I mean, yeah, because you are, you, you kind of are under the TVA, which I mean, you know, if you follow history, you follow policy and the TVA is like a big, that was a big part of uh, the pitch of the federal government back in the thirties to help create, uh, you know, kind of create infrastructure uh, jobs that would get people back to work that would yeah. help. It, you know, would help bring and deliver power to rural areas. I Man, it's a, it's kind of a, that's a big deal where you're working. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. TVA is yeah. <laughs> and, and honestly, we're running into a lot of problems with TVA that we also see with the co-ops when it comes to like public control over our public power, you know? Yeah. And I mean, the TV, TVA history is so impactful for our state and, you know, TVA doesn't only provide power to Tennessee, but also parts of six surrounding states. Yeah. And you know, TVA did bring a lot of jobs. TVA also brought flood control, which was really, really needed at the time. Um, and also like just having electricity dramatically improved quality of life, you know, for this region and, and for rural areas, the same, you know, the same story is, is true with the co-ops, right? Like bringing in electricity yeah. changed yeah. the jobs that people could have and also, yeah, just quality of life in their homes. Yeah. And I think that's all good, but also, you know, something that's happened I feel like, you know, in rural places throughout the country is that electricity production back when it started in rural places um, also displaced a lot of communities, you know, like the dams that were built here. Yeah. Yeah. The dams that were built for hydropower. I mean, even some of the coal plants that were built, like displaced communities. And sometimes that same infrastructure is powering, you know, both both the rural places, but some of that electricity is going to more urban places as well. But, mm-hmm. you know, they're situated, the actual infrastructure is situated in rural places. Then yeah. you have coal ash, you know, and the coal ash that's been produced by these high polluters for decades is also in rural communities, you know, so they're the ones dealing with the direct like air pollution and water pollution that's coming from some of these big pieces of infrastructure, you know. Yeah. And they hold a lot of debt. So the co-ops had to go into debt in order to build these facilities. And so now we're at a time where transition really needs to happen. Um, in a lot of places like co-ops in rural places, people have higher energy burdens. So they're spending a larger portion of their electricity bill um, to pay for electricity. Or sorry, they're, they're spending a, lot of, a larger portion of their income to pay for their electricity bill. Yeah. So high energy burden, their co-ops in debt, like we don't like rural communities should not be going into further into debt. Member owners should not have higher bills in order to transition to renewable energy. That also does not mean we should allow utilities to continue polluting these places for decades, you know, because they can't afford it. Like we need federal money in order to make that transition happen. Just like we needed federal money in order to get rural electric cooperatives into rural places, um, get electricity to rural places during the new deal. So that needs to happen again. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Cause I mean, and so, yeah, cause I think, you know, to kind of, you know, the kind of talk to folks, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast and in our emails about like the investor owned utilities in Missouri, Ameren, Evergy, the big ones, you know, that what they, what they tend typically do just and this is for the this is for the listeners. This is not for you, Bree. I'm just trying to add some color commentary here. No, please, please fill in because I'm like you know I'm kind of my own world over here. So, yeah. Tell them, James. You, you usually I'm just talking to myself and like it, it requires medication and this is a good way to at least like pretend like I'm, <laughs> I'm accomplishing something with that. So like with Amron, they, they typically will generate their own power. They will transmit their own power. And they will distribute that power to your home or business. That's their model. They go before state regulators and they get approval to uh, to build those things. They get approval to charge you, uh, you know, as part of your rate as a customer to build that plus a rate of return. So they get a uh, they get a financial incentive to build these plants, and that's kind of how they operate. Now with co-ops in Missouri, anyway, 
And, you know, we probably need to distinguish whether or not the Tennessee regulates co-ops at the with state utility regulators. Bree, is that, how's that work in Tennessee? Do they, do they, do they have to go to, do they have to go so, to the like? You're asking about the co-ops? Yeah. 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 So things look really different here in Tennessee because we have TVA. Um, yeah. You know, like our, our public utilities commission does not regulate TVA and right. it does not regulate any of the co-ops or munis. <laughs> right. Yeah. We don't either. We don't regulate co-ops or munis in Missouri either. Yeah. Uh, okay. And also the co-ops don't own much of their own infrastructure right. at all. Like, and nor do the munis. TVA produces all of it. And yeah. that's recently shifted a little bit. Um, there's like now there's a flexibility provision in the long-term contracts with TVA that allows our just our local power companies, the LPCs as we call them, that's the co-ops and munis. It allows them to self-generate three to five percent of their okay. power. Yeah, and you know, so this like larger transition we're pushing pushing for through the Build Back Better Act, like the Rural Power Coalition's goals. Like obviously, there's a provision in there to help these GNTs transition. Yeah, to talk more about what that means in Missouri, but there's other provisions in there that I think will help distribution utilities like the co-ops and municipal utilities that distribute also implement clean energy and energy efficiency in a way that helps bring some of those benefits closer to home. I can talk more about that in a second, but yeah, you should go to Missouri. Yeah, I know, because I mean, I think people, I want to make sure people understand the structure and I think it is a little different in Tennessee because of the TVA. But the way co-ops work in Missouri is you have a power supplier. If you've ever heard of Associated Electric, they're based out of Springfield in the southwest part of the state. They're power suppliers. They work directly with generation and transmission organizations. Those are those GNTs, not genotonics. They are about, uh, what do we have, six or seven of those, Philip, in Missouri? Six? Yeah, we have six. Yep. Six. So then they generate and transmit power to these local co-ops, these distributive co-ops, for which in Missouri, we have uh, 41 that are within the state entirely, and there's 43 total. And some of those are in other parts, in other parts of like Arkansas and Oklahoma. So the, the distributive co-op, like if you live like say in, I don't know, like I, I'm from Marshfield, I'm from the Southwest part of the state, that's Webster Electric cooperative, you are having your power delivered to your house or business by Webster Electric. They are buying it from Show Me Power, which is the generation and transmission organization that covers that. And they're working with uh, Associated Electric as far as like being the ultimate power supplier, which I think TVA, and Bree, please correct me on how that works. They're like kind of the power supplier for the co-ops in Tennessee. Is that is that how yeah. you realize it? Yep. Okay. Yep. TVA is the big generation and transmission utility here. But, but they're also kind of a, I mean, that, and what's the big difference between what, what Associated Electric Missouri and TVA is? TVA is like, I think you call it a quasi public entity. How much of the influence does the, the federal government have with TVA's management? <laughs> oh, who has influence with TVA? I, somebody answer this question and then maybe I can do <laughs> Did but, I open a can of worms here? I mean, it is a can of worms, but you know, TVA used to get taxpayer money for its operations, but that ended. Um, the taxpayer, like all taxpayers in the U.S., money used to go towards uh, some of TVA's operations, mm-hmm. and I think there's a good case to be made for some of that to be returned. But 
that ended for the energy program back in 1959. And then there are like economic development environment programs. Um, the federal tax money that went towards that ended in like the 80s, 90s, I think somewhere around there. Yeah. So the federal government, you know, the president has influence because the president nominates TVA board members and those board okay. members are confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And then there's also like the TVA Act, which actually established TVA. You know, there's certain federal statute yeah. that has some governance over TVA. But, you know, beyond that, I would argue that there's really not much federal influence and there's really not much local influence is what I would have to say. They're, they're kind of like they're kind of they're kind of like their own sovereign. <laughs> yeah. States. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because there's other you know, PMAs, like big federal utilities across the country, but even like TVA's operations look different than those. It's yeah. kind of its own beast. And, you know, we've gone to different federal agencies and um, different elected officials and have, you know, tried to make this case, like, you know, what can y'all do to have influence over TVA? Because we we're really struggling to get a grip here. You know, TVA stopped having public listening sessions when the pandemic started you know, they said that they didn't have the technical capability, they, they didn't have the capability to keep having a listening session, couldn't do it virtual like other utilities. So like, we don't even have that at this point to <laughs> make an influence That's over TVA. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, it, 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 so the, I mean, you, you obviously, I mean, in, in Tennessee, you're kind of dealing with like kind of a different scenario because you have your, your, your power supplier has like this kind of very unique, um, uh, kind of leadership structure its authority comes from the feds mm -hmm. you know with, with that and with what we do in missouri here however there is still like more of a um people i think are surprised we were talking about this debt when 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 co-ops largely the power suppliers build coal plants they get their debt from usda it's federal money, right? Right. Yeah. And so, and there's not a whole lot of incentive for them to pay those down mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because, you know, the feds aren't going to like foreclose on them or anything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I mean, you know, co-ops do, I mean, at least in Missouri, I mean, they they keep their, their, their prices relatively low. I mean, I think, you know, it, that's relative to the fact, I think you mentioned energy burden and in rural parts of Missouri, your dollar doesn't go as far as it could because your opportunity to make money and your other expenses are also factored in there. But, um, you know, they have all this debt. They, they aren't paying it down. Uh, there's a significant amount of it. And they can't shut these plants down. Mm -hmm. And if they do, then that debt still has to be paid off. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and, and, you know, kind of just even like talking to co-op people in Missouri, I mean, you know, what you have to understand, and I think I can, I can appreciate the perspective on this. Like when Ameren goes and builds a plant, they can go get capitalization from Wall Street. Mm -hmm. That capitalization is going to be backed up by the fact that ratepayers are going to be paying not only for the plant, but also paying, you know, Ameren back. And I, I don't mean to pick on Ameren, I'm just using an example, nine to 10% of, of what they put into it. Mm -hmm. So co-ops in Tennessee and Missouri do not have those same incentives. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we're trying to do with this legislation or what our coalition, Rural Power Coalition, uh, is trying to do is to find a way to give, to entice them to do something differently. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably true. You know, it's like, we're, I mean, again, it's a little bit different here, but we're running into some similar problems. I mean, TVA has said that they're going to close, that it will close its remaining coal plants by 2035, I think they said, um, is what, which none of that's official yet. But with the coal plant closures, TVA is talking about converting those former coal plants to natural gas, which is not what we want because it would mean new new pipeline infrastructure and also like polluting fossil fuel (laughs) system. Like we don't need more of that. And also like this will probably become a stranded asset, you know, some argue in as little as in as few as like five years after they're constructed. So it's like, how do we, how do we get these utilities to make better decisions? And right right now the existing federal funding sources for co-ops, you know, they're mostly loans that would have to be paid back, you know? And so just establishing a new federal funding source. And I think part of what rural power coalition has been shooting for is, is trying to make sure that there are a lot of forgivable loans in there. Yeah. Cause that's, that's more appealing for utilities to have a forgivable loan than something they're going to have to pay back with interest, you know? So that's, that's part of what we've been pushing for as well. But yeah, I mean, we've got to, we've got to make it enticing cause it is a technical, a technological question. And um, I think in some ways an uncertainty for utility leadership to commit to con- closing plants and getting to 100% as soon as possible. And, making sure that there are tools and the right support out there to facilitate that process is really important. Yeah. And so basically the idea is you, we, we, the debt goes away, they shut down the plants, they, they reinvest in clean energy and this funding that we're talking about is all, you know, originally we wanted it to be in the COVID relief package. Uh, That's what we originally started discussing. That did not happen, but there is a form of this in the build back better bill <laughs> uh, that uh, is um, is before the Senate. It's been voted on by the House a couple of weeks ago, House of Representatives at the federal level. And so that is, I mean, we're talking about like around $10 billion-ish in this bill. I mean, it's something like that. Ish, yeah. Ish. <laughs> I think, yeah, 9.7 9. and then some additional numbers after that. But yeah, yeah, ish. Yeah, I mean, but like, you know, keep in mind, I mean, that's a lot of money. But rem- I remember, I remember like it just, it happened 10 years ago. You know, we were using a number that I think the co-op said, like to do this, we would need $100 billion. Yeah, and- I think we've we've estimated that the debt that's currently held by, by all of the electric co-ops across the country to a number of lenders, some of them are federal, some of them are might be private, is around 100 billion. I think the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association said they wanted 30 billion in order to do right. this. So our number was higher, but we were looking at like, how do we do this in a way that's just and results in investments in clean energy that are um, equitable for communities? So that's part of the reason why our number was higher too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, we're, I mean, and I think a lot of people get, I think people are surprised whenever we talk about this, that there is that much debt in this, in the, in the generation of this power. It's a lot, it's a lot of money. And you're paying a little bit of that every month to service that debt. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, and I think, you know, the one thing that I can speak to being, you know, a farm kid being from a rural area, and I, you know, I, this is not unique to, to farming or, or to rural areas, but, you know, debt 
has a unique way of holding you back. <laughs> debt has a unique way of making you think more about, you know, just getting by than thinking about what you can do. Um, and I think that's true, not just for an individual. I think that's true for, you know, energy companies. I think that's true for communities. And I think there's something to be said that we need to wipe, we need to do something to get rid of that debt so we can move forward. And, you know, and I know like there's a lot of fear and a lot of concern. I mean, look, I have to hear people in Missouri talk about like what happens when these coal plants shut down. I'm not in coal country <laughs> doing this like you are. So I have to imagine you are hearing, you know, people concerned like, what am I supposed to do for work? Mm -hmm. You already hear that from time to time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think in Tennessee, at least, like most of our coal plants have, there's not a lot of active coal operation here at this point. And I think like most of the utility leadership that I've talked to and even like elected officials in Tennessee, I think it could be a little bit different maybe in like Southwest Virginia, but mm. you know, they know, they know, they see the writing on the wall, right? Like coal isn't coming back despite you know, what some people <laughs> in politics have had to say yeah. <laughs> over the last few years, coal isn't coming back, but it is a question for, you know, one of the things that is also unique about TVA is that TVA has a lot of um, union employees, mm -hmm. TVA employs like 10,000 annual workers every year and another 11,000 on contract. And many of them are on union are, are in unions and we're in a right to work state and a right to work region oh, yeah. um, that's pretty anti-union. So that's a very special like relationship that TBA has with the unions. Yeah. Um, doesn't always mean that like workers at who have been to, doing TBA work have been protected um, or, you know, gotten everything that they've needed or should have on right. TBA projects. But it is a question for some of these guys, you know, like, um, plumbers and pipe fitters and boilermakers and, you know, some of these different trades, like what are they going to do for work? Because right now they're working at these giant coal plants that require like high skilled, um, highly trained workers that are working on like these just big industrial type projects. Right. And when we're right. transitioning to like solar, even utility scale solar, those are different types of jobs. Like they're not the same jobs as what workers are, you know, as the current workers at some of these big plants. So it is a question. It is a concern about like, what is going to happen with jobs um, as we make this transition? And one of the things I like to point out is like, well, like these, well, one, these, these coal plants are closing. Like we, at least here, we know they are going to be closing. Right. And a gas plant conversion doesn't result in long-term jobs for many workers at all, you know? Right. So like, this is a question that we have to deal with. If we can plan for this earlier, we can make sure that like current workers who want to be retired by the time the plant closes have ample time to do that and that they get a good retirement package. That if there are workers who want to look into new new aspects of the trade or a different trade entirely, that there's training programs set up to do that. But also this is an opportunity for us to, you know, like invest in a new workforce, you know, and, yeah. and help train up new folks, like young people who are looking for jobs or black and brown communities that yeah. want to get into the trades or women that want to be in the trades. Like that's right. an opportunity for us to do that as well. So I think it's just like being realistic about like what, what the challenges are and also 
being optimistic about what our opportunities are is, is the way that I answer that question usually. Yeah, because I mean, you mentioned, you know, we talk about solar technicians and things like that, but you know, you talked about energy efficiency programs that you're trying to tout in those areas. There's a lot of really good paying jobs that go along with that work too. Yeah, right. And I mean, here's the thing too. It's like some of some of these are are different when I, you know, there's like commercial industrial energy efficiency that needs to be done. And that's a little bit of a different skill set. You're working with different materials to do that work than you are like a residential weatherization project, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but and right now they're those are different pay scales, but I would argue that the workers who are doing like residential energy efficiency and would be the ones that are like installing solar arrays and doing maintenance on that should be paid more, you know, in the energy yeah. transition, like let's bump up that pay scale and make it, make it more equitable and more sustainable and something folks can, you know, support a family on. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, increased opportunity for jobs, clean, modern technology is going to be going into these communities, getting rid of debt, maybe, you know, bringing down, uh, utility bills. What's not to like about what we're doing, Brie? <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's true. And, you know, one of, one of the other aspects that like we deal with a lot here of energy transition is like, what happens to all of the coal ash that is stored next sure. to these plants, you know? Mm -hmm. And we dealt with like back in 2008, the, one of TVA's plants, the Kingston coal plant um, had a spill where like more than a million gallons of coal ash or maybe a million I'm I always get the <laughs> the measurement wrong on this but a lot of coal ash went into Clinch and Emory rivers and workers spent six years cleaning it up wow. um, unfortunately yeah it was the largest industrial disaster in in U.S. history and unfortunately those workers were not protected they were not given proper oh safety gosh. equipment to do the cleanup like they weren't allowed to wear respirators and a bunch of bad things happened but, um, and, and, you know, that's like an impact, like the aftermath of that, we are still dealing with, the workers are certainly still dealing with that. Many of them have died, many are sick, but like coal ash cleanup is a big part of a just transition and energy transition. And we have to make sure that workers are protected in coal ash cleanup, that they have respirators, they have proper PPE, that they have ways to report issues in that process. But I'll say, like, with all of that said, that's a lot of work. <laughs> that is a lot of work. There were hundreds of workers, right. I think, somewhere between six and 900 workers cleaned up the Kingston coal ash. And if, and if coal ash cleanup is a part of transition in communities in Missouri, like, that is a lot of jobs right there. A lot of people. Yeah, yeah a lot of right. people and good paying jobs, too. But yeah. making sure they're safe is, is the big question, though. Which sometimes gets skimped when we do these things. Or like not not from us, but like from the people that are running it, and so that's 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 absolutely. You know, that's the thing I look at. Like, I mean, I think about you know coming from you know some people come from a coal background. I come from a farm background. I mean, man, it's it's yeah. You can say like it's really rewarding work. It pays really well. It is hard. It's hard on your health. It's unsafe. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, There's got to be a better way to make a living sometimes, I have to think. Yeah, James, that's so true. I mean, yeah, that's the other part too, is like, yeah, transitioning to like jobs that aren't as dangerous is a good thing. Like it's a fundamental good thing. <laughs> You're talking about black lungs. You know, like, I mean, that is, I mean, that's, I mean, that is something that like, I mean, these, I mean, how many people die early? Yeah. Die right. in their 40s, die in their 50s from that. 
Yeah. You and those then, numbers better than me, probably. But I yeah, mean, I mean, oh, it's it's totally dangerous. Like, black, I mean, black lung is awful. And then, yeah, what the the workers at Kingston who dealt with the cleanup, like they've got all kinds of strange, like, you know, lung diseases and blood cancers and all kinds of stuff going on at this point. So like, yeah, yeah from a worker safety and health and quality of life perspective, like moving to cleaner jobs is definitely a good thing. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there, there's a lot of indirect benefits. It's hard to measure um, because you don't really quite know like what those jobs like are doing as far and, and the, that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of admissions going in, like what that does for health, what that does for productivity, all that other thing. We try to quantify it, but it, it's never like a direct thing that you can discuss. And so I think that's important too. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Now, as we're, as we're talking, the people listening to this will be in the future. Uh, <laughs> we're not releasing this till next week, I don't think. Uh, and so, you know, this is, this is landed and build back better. Uh, you know, and I think, as you mentioned, uh, you know, there is not necessarily opposition from rural electric cooperatives. I mean, we disagree with details. We disagree with numbers, but I mean, there's a general sense that this is something they would be, that some of them are open to, but, uh, you know, the question of what is the fate of this bill is still very much open. Um, maybe it's not open by the time uh, this 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 lands, uh, and everything I'm saying now is irrelevant. <laughs> um, but we are we are you know our group, which by the way, I mean I, I, I say this a lot on the phone calls. I'll say it here. This is one of the most impressive groups of people I've ever worked with in my career. Um, and I know I've, my career is probably a little longer than yours, Brie. I'm a little older than you. <laughs> But, but I mean, like the group, the people we're working with you, the people in Kentucky, Georgia, Minnesota, you know, we have, we have people who are working kind of in the Dakota States. I mean, this is a really good group. I'm very impressed with the uh, talent and dedication of the people here because we're not, we're not in liberal States. Uh, we, are, um, <laughs> we are, we are having to do kind of a, a hard slog when we're, we're doing this work. And I think we understand how delicate Mm -hmm. our message has to be we have to be you know we have to we have to know that like there are bigger things that we should be talking about yeah. um, I mean it's a good group I mean I, I really like for real we're we're pretty great um, but even with that we we are still at the forces of what is the senate going to do with this and I don't know we have heard reports this week the week we're recording this that maybe this could put on a shelf maybe this moves forward i know that we're just we are just continuing to work and work and work on it mm -hmm. that's all you can do yeah i mean it's definitely like our provision and the things we've been talking about like all these you know all the issues we're dealing with with rural electric cooperatives and how do we support transition for rural communities so that they don't get left behind mm -hmm. and the clean energy um in the clean energy transition, all of this is wrapped up in the Build Back Better Act, <laughs> which is like, yeah, at, you know, at the hands, you know, in the in the hands of the Senate right now, yeah. and Joe Manchin <laughs> from West Virginia, and uh, yeah, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, obviously, this is, I mean, this is a really great group, the Rural Power Coalition. Um, all y'all, it's been very great to work with you. I'm totally amazed still at everything we've, we've been able to accomplish that we've been able to get these provisions in Build Back Better, but uh, if it doesn't pass, it means that our work over the next couple of years is just going to be that much harder. Like we need these yeah. federal resources and I'm excited to see what we can do if Build Back Better passes, 
And that means all of our groups are going to be organizing with communities on the ground to try to get access to these funds and build good transition programs for our communities. But uh, if Build Back Better doesn't pass, <laughs> again, I mean, we're still going to be pushing forward. We'll find other routes, yeah. but let's make it pass. So, Philip, I think this is time for you to make that plug again about what people can do. Now, this is when I want you to tell what people what to do, Philip. This is this is the this is the this is the pitch. Well, we're going to be sending a lot of communications within of the email for this podcast. So look out for that. We're also going to be sending out a re-news today that has some very good links to our social media platforms and our website, uh, ruralpower.us. So please keep your eyes peeled for that. And we could specifically use help with our call to action to reach out to senators, which we'll be sending to you all. And uh, to also just get LTEs and op-eds published. Don't really need a lot of help in Missouri, but if you have friends in blue places, uh, please share it with them. Hey, uh, Bob Woodward, you want to tell people what an LTE is? Letter to the editor. Okay. <laughs> I know we're all with the journalistic lingo here, but uh, <laughs> I just, no, it's Philip, that's great. I, look, this is, I mean, yeah, we, there's this group working on this. I mean, I know there are people in Missouri, there are people in Tennessee, there are people in Kentucky who are just wanting to know what can I do? And they look at, you know, they look at Marsha Blackburn and they think, well, maybe she's not going to be the one that helps us with this. Safe to say, Bree. Um, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> I think but, that's uh, right. we do need to find some Democrats Are yeah. there out there. <laughs> it's not going to be Josh Hawley from Missouri. I can, I can yeah. tell you that. He's, he's got a podcast with his wife where he talks about how to be like a good couple. That's no joke. He has a podcast. Go check it out. Subscribe to it with Renew Gurus. Um, <laughs> But the, yeah, we there are ways. There are ways that you can have an influence on this. This, to me, is the time. This is the time to do this. Mm-hmm. We are all doing this now. I believe it is. It is no mistake that this is the opportunity that we all have uh, to to amplify the state work we're we're doing at a larger level. Um, I mean, we don't at Renew Missouri do a lot of federal level work. Uh, we are very laser focused on what we do here in the state. Yeah. Uh, you, your group is very like, I mean, I'm, I'm impressed by the scale and scope of your group. It is, it is really impressive to me. Uh, but still, you know, you are focusing a lot on, you know, regional issues and state issues and that sort of thing. So yeah. This- I mean, this is the most federal work that, I mean, the most we've done on the federal front in years and I think because like so much of what we're dealing with is, is now wrapped up in some federal policy that's in Build Back Better and was in the infrastructure bill. But yeah. but yeah, we need, you know, I think people people already wrote their letters to Santa. If uh, if you don't want coal for Christmas, now you need yeah. to write a letter to the Senate, you know? <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's good. That's it's corny as shit, but that's it. That's the pitch. It, hey, uh, I think that's, uh, I, that's absolutely right. Because I mean, like, you know, like just like everyone else, the Senate waits till the last minute to do anything. You will be shopping <laughs> for Christmas gifts or holiday gifts, I should say. They will be maybe making some substantial decision about this uh, as you're listening to this podcast. And, um, you know, m- you know, send it home. Message, you know, get that message out there. Work with us. It's not going to it's not going to come from us. It's not going to come from our groups. It's going to come from you, the five people listening to this podcast probably more i hope we'll, we'll work on getting more people Bree, five, um, five letters is better than none i'm, I'm exactly yeah. that's this is re- we're really you know we're really like kind of uh you know we're doing niche marketing here um brie 
you've been great. I, I think I've kept you way longer than I thought I was going to because I could just talk to you about this all day. I could talk about the subject all day. If people want to learn more about your group, where would you send them? Oh, let's see. Probably app. I think it's appvoices.org. I should probably know this. Yeah, <laughs> appvoices. I've only been here five years. You I need do to check. Oh, we'll give you a second. We'll edit that out. <laughs> it's appvoices.org. Yeah. Okay. Do you are you on are you on the social medias? Oh yeah, we're on. Um, we are on Facebook. I think our Facebook probably says App Voices or Appalachian Voices. We're on. We are on Instagram. I think we're also on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter really, so I don't really know what no, happens. But, but we're on the social. Twitter is great. That's where you can be insane and like you can get away with it. It's it's. Phenomenal. I made I made an account last year, and it's like I think I'm too late to figure it out. You know, it's like I'm tweeting. I don't really know what I'm doing. So I think, and it, it takes a while. I think to get used to it, and I'm just sort of I don't know if it's worth it at this point. It, it's kind of its own. It is kind of its own language. It's got a, like it's, they've got their own little jokes on there and everything. But um, I like it. You're not you're not on the TikTok, Brie. You're not doing that. I know. No, I'm not on TikTok. Yeah, I'm sort of. Uh, I'm a little out of touch, I think. You know, I know I'm younger than you, James, but I'm old enough to be out of touch. So maybe we can meet somewhere in the middle. <laughs> we'll just sit around and watch uh, Golden Girls on MeTV. And, okay, uh, yeah, I am into Golden Girls. I'll do that. <laughs> have our local teen at four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, <laughs> Bree, thank you again um, for your time. I really appreciate you being on here. I had a lot of fun. And I hope all of you at home had fun. If you like what you heard on Renew Gurus, go subscribe to us on all the major podcast platforms, leave a review, share this podcast on your social media networks. And while I've got you, uh, if you're listening, you more than likely got our year-end appeal. If you've got that envelope sitting on your desk, go fill out our year-end survey, go send us a check if you're able. Uh, and we would uh, very much like to have your support in continuing to do this work. And on behalf of Renew Missouri, this is James Owen wishing you all to take care of yourselves and one another. Have a good week, folks. <laughs>